chapter 3 this evening. Uh, We're considering just one verse of Scripture again. This is the 19th verse of the third chapter. And this is a verse that speaks about the assurance of our salvation. Now, for many months, we have been carefully going through uh, this epistle of 1 John, and we're studying the ways that John tells us that we can test our hearts to understand whether or not we are truly Christians. And sometimes when we look at the method that John uses to do this, we might think that what he's actually doing is putting more doubt into us rather than actually offering us assurance. I mentioned last week that verse number 20 in this chapter is a very controversial verse, and we're going to get into that in just a few weeks. But uh, some people argue about that verse number 20, whether God is actually far more condemning for our hearts when we commit sin against him, or is that a, a verse that actually is intended to bring comfort to us, to know that God knows us and our frailties, and we can take comfort in the fact that God is not condemning us. But in any case, we learn here in the epistle of 1 John that God wants us to have assurance of our salvation. And this is really, uh, going through this book as a great vehicle to test ourselves, uh, to do an examination of our lives and really understand, do we know Christ? And uh, we believe that the scriptures teach that we have every right to know whether we are Christians or not. God has given us that right. God wants us to know it because an assured Christian is a happy Christian. And a Christian that doubts his salvation is a miserable one. And if you lived in the time that John did when Christians were attacked from every side by pagan unbelievers and an unsympathetic government and then also by false Christians that were perverting the doctrines of Christ, you would understand why you needed someone to teach you these things, to to really help you to understand the wonderful promises that God has given in his word that we do have eternal life once we have believed in him. So God does want us to have assurance. And John uh, says in the fifth chapter of this book that he says, I've written these things so that you'll know that you do have eternal life. But John wants to make sure, doubly sure, that our assurance of salvation is built on rock-solid evidence that we have in our lives rather than what many people have where they just talk the talk and can't walk the walk. So he writes in this 19th verse as a follow-up to the doctrinal, the moral, and the social test of Christianity. And he makes this statement. He says, Hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. So the subject again this evening is assurance that we really are children of God. I want to take you back to the first part of the message that we talked about last week. And we looked at this from the negative side. Uh, There are factors involved that might cause us to lose our assurance and might even cause us to back down from the strong assertions that we might try to make that we really do know that we are children of God. So we talked about some problematic factors of assurance, and those factors are real. And if we approach those without being fully aware of the standing that we have in Christ, then we would succumb to these and we would always be fearful of our salvation. Uh, let me give those to you very briefly because we, we did spend some time uh, on them last week. But first of all, I talked to you about the issue of being in the presence of God, that we can never escape the watchful eye of God, and that God is powerful enough that if he wanted to do it, he could crush us like a bug on the sidewalk, as I said last week. We are sinful, 
And we're in the presence of one who is too too high and too holy for us even to lift our eyes to look upon. And then we're also face to face with God's perfection. God is perfect righteousness. And we come face to face with his laws that are demanding and they're exacting. Uh, God's law demands perfect obedience. And the law itself is unforgiving. It's rigid. And the law can actually offer us nothing more than just a penalty for breaking it. So we struggle with this inadequacy that we have of really meeting the standard of God's law because we fall into sin over and over again. The best of the best can't measure up to God's perfection. And so if we are uh, face-to-face with God alone, without Christ to help us, then we are in hopelessness. Then, of course, we're also faced with God's punishment. God promises that he will recompense evil. He says that he's never going to clear the guilty. And that's a very important point for us because all of us are guilty before God. All of us are sinners. And so the question has to be asked, how can we be just with God? And is it possible to be just with God after we're saved and we do enter into sin? Because we're painfully aware that we do sin. So these are factors that weigh against us. And in the first place, I would say it's good that we're aware of these, uh, that we know about this because we can't ignore them. We can't ignore God. The creature can't ignore the creator. And so we can't ignore his majesty, his holiness, his justice. And if we truly do know him, we will always be in consideration of these kinds of factors. Now, to receive the assurance that we need, that we are the people of God, what we have to do is to weigh those factors against the improvement of our status because we have a relationship with Christ. So that brings me tonight to the positive side of this. And this evening I want to talk to you about the persuasive facts of assurance. And there's a looming issue out there uh, for us if we're going to talk about the assurance of our salvation. And it's a doctrine that's been argued uh, for, for centuries and centuries. And this is the doctrine of eternal security. If we are marvelously saved by the grace of Christ, is it possible that we could later lose our salvation? Can we fail of the grace of God? And if it's possible for us to fail of God's grace, once we have received that grace, then assurance is impossible. If salvation is given to us and then taken away, then the whole point of us spending our time here on the issue of assurance would would be wasted. There there is really no reason to even talk about this. And so what I would rather do, if our salvation could be taken away from us and we could lose it, what I would rather do tonight is to spend all of my time talking to you about the things that you have to look out for that would cause you to lose it. I'd talk to you about all the different pitfalls that you could fall into, and, and I would spend all of my time trying to explain that to you, and then I would still be fearful that I didn't mention it all, that somehow you would still lose it. But... The key to the whole thing is eternal security. Is it true or untrue that once we have received salvation that we're secure? Well, I think there are some persuasive facts that are given to us in the Bible in relation to the eternal security that we have in Christ. So first, the Bible gives us proof that salvation is permanent. And not only does the Bible give us proof of it, but it gives us abundant proof, and it really ought to be a natural outflowing consequence of understanding our justification uh, in God, uh, Christ justifying a sinner from the penalty of sin. If we are justified by faith in Christ alone, then that same justifying faith has to be the foundational building block 
of our preservation. And the Apostle Paul stated this obvious conclusion in Galatians when he said, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This would I learn of you, or this only would I learn of you, received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? And from there he goes on to speak of how Abraham was justified by faith. And if you combine Abraham's justification by faith uh, with what he says there in verse number 3, then we know that Abraham was not made perfect by any further work that he could do. His justifying faith was a sufficient guarantee that he would continue with righteous standing before God. And if you remember this... Uh, justification by faith alone was the rallying cry of the Reformation. I mean, that, that was what the, the, the main issue of the Reformation was. Are we justified by faith alone? And all of the Reformers stood firmly on, on justification by faith alone and also the consequent doctrine of eternal security. Now, that doctrine began to be denied in Protestantism at a later time when people began to systematically deny all of the doctrines of grace. And so they denied the inherent depravity of man, uh, denial of election, and denial of effectual calling. And finally, when you deny all of that, really you come down to a denial of the preservation and the perseverance of the saints. Now, I mentioned the Protestant Reformation, but the Protestants did not discover anything that was new. What, what, it may have been news to them when they found out these doctrines, but these doctrines that refuted Roman Catholicism's idea of conditional justification and conditional election and the belief that assurance of salvation is actually an anathematical doctrine, that uh, all of that was soundly refuted all the way back to the time of the apostles and, and true churches for 1,500 years had, already, had always been teaching the doctrine of eternal security. Now, what I want to show you here are, are some proofs of the permanency of salvation. How do we know that salvation is permanent? Well, number one is the purpose of salvation. And we can debate the purpose of salvation from a lot of different angles. Uh, we say that salvation is for the glory of God, that God has designed our salvation to bring us to a recognition that God deserves to be glorified. And the simple truth of the matter is, unsaved people cannot glorify God. Now, in an upside-down, backward sort of sense, they will glorify God eventually. And it sounds kind of strange to say, but they will glorify God by God's perfect justice in condemning them to hell. But we would be foolish to think that God's greatest glory is achieved by sending people to hell. Because if that was God's purpose, then he never would have sent Christ in the first place. So we know that's not what God wants. Uh, God, that would be out of character for him. He didn't create the race to condemn it. But what he did do was call out of the fallen race a people for his name. And the motivation for doing that was the great love that he had for them. And his purpose was to save them from that fallen condition. Now, I'd like you to turn to, to uh, Romans chapter 8, if you would, and I want to show you here the intensity of this desire in God. 
Now, a moment ago, I told you that if salvation could be lost, that what I would do is spend my time telling you all the many pitfalls to avoid that would condemn you to hell. But here in this scripture, in Romans chapter 8, Paul shows us how that God has overcome every pitfall that's imaginable that could separate us from God. So the basis of God keeping us through thick and thin is the marvelous purpose that he has. And he starts in verse number 28 and continues with the purpose on down to the end of this chapter. So Romans 8:28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And we'll stop there for just a moment. What is God's purpose? Well, hang on to this text for just a minute and let me read to you from Colossians chapter 1. Paul says there, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So you were a sinner before, you were an enemy of God before, and it's God's purpose, Christ's purpose in salvation to change you from what you were to what he wants you to be, and that's to be holy, to be unblameable, to be unreprovable in his sight. Now, if you want to pencil it in here, maybe right next to that, his purpose is to change your position. And so if salvation can be lost, then God has failed in his purpose. Now, we go back to Romans chapter 8. You're called according to God's purpose. And then Paul goes on and he says in verse 29, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Now, let me stop there, and I want you to hold on to verse number uh, 34 and hold on to it for another week, if you would, because we're going to come back to the thought of Christ's intercession. And you might want to underline that because that is another proof of our eternal salvation. Now, next, Paul goes on to show us how every conceivable possibility of falling has been removed. So he says in verse 33, or 35 rather, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So is salvation permanent? Well, verse number 39 is adamant about this. Um, Everything is covered here. Now, interestingly, and, and I might say even ignorantly, there are some people who argue against this with a brilliant statement, and they'll say, well, you are exactly right. This is what the Word of God says. Nothing can separate us from Christ, and it lists all the things that can't separate us. But then they say, but you can decide to separate yourself from Christ. 
And so in one simple statement, they believe that they've destroyed the entire argument as if the Apostle Paul is so foolish as to have not considered that or leave that possibility open. Verse 37 says, We are conquerors of all of these different foes through the power, through the love of Christ. But is Christ's love insufficient to defend us against ourselves? Well, that, that's something almost too ludicrous for us even to argue. I mean, if you imagine this, that, that God's love is for us as individuals and that we have been reconciled to him through Christ's blood, and yet God's love fails to conquer the one thing that was his original intent? I mean, that doesn't make sense. His original intent was you. And if he didn't conquer you with love, then you never got saved in the first place because you were an enemy of his. You were hostile towards him. Every sinner is condemned to hell, and when he saved you, he already conquered all of that with his love. That's assumed. So what are you going to, how are you going to come back to Paul after he said all this and say, well, well sure, what, what about me? What about me? I mean, uh, can I make all of this that you just said of no account, no good? And that's what makes an apostle and a pastor beat his head against a brick wall when somebody asks you a question like that. You see, there's no disrespect to Arminians, folks, but sometimes they're very thick. And um, I suppose you can't blame them too much because the devil is very good at blinding people's eyes. But the kinds of arguments that we find here are lost on the natural man because the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. And so he's not going to be able to understand the Paul's argument here. So I think we'd have to say that Paul's purpose which is to, or God's purpose rather, which is to bring us faultless and blameless and unreprovable before God's throne, guarantees our eternal salvation. God is never going to fail in his purpose. So justification, that's the first step. That's the guilt of sin being removed by the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and God is not going to fail in his purpose. Now secondly, we would look at the promise of eternal life. You know, I often say that salvation is not first for you, that salvation is first of all for God. God's glory is paramount, and God receives glory by turning you into a creature that can actually glorify him. Now, if, if I say that that is God's first purpose, then it stands to reason there must be a second, or else I would say that God alone is the purpose. But there is a second. And the second is that you are personally in the mix because God loved you. You are an object of God's love, and God has made the promise that those who believe in him will have eternal life. And this is also another one of those mind-boggling mysteries, I think, when you start to argue about the Bible, because some people miss this. I mean, they miss it, and they conclude that eternal life and everlasting life is somehow neither. Well, one of the greatest verses that we have on it is a very direct statement that Christ made in John 5:24. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. I don't think there's anybody who would argue that passing from death to life means anything other than salvation. I mean, it doesn't make any difference which side of the argument that you come down on, even if you believe that salvation could be lost. At least we do understand this, that the verse is saying that you have passed from death unto life, and that means salvation. If you believe, you have salvation. And then preceding that, there are two very important qualifiers for the person who passes from death to life. The first says that he has everlasting life, 
And the second is, he shall not come into condemnation. Those are actually two statements that mean precisely the same thing. Condemnation is the opposite of everlasting life. Now, in John 3, Jesus said, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And the contrast there is to verses 16 and 17 where Jesus says that the world will be saved by belief in Christ. The world will receive everlasting life by belief in Christ. How hard is everlasting to understand? I don't think it's all that hard. I mean, if you receive everlasting life and the Bible says you will not come into condemnation, then how long will you be saved? Well, the answer is forever. You have assurance of eternal salvation. And as John says in 1 John, that you may know that you have eternal life. And remember, we've already taken the possibility of unbelief out of the equation. We did that when we looked in Romans chapter 8. So you could never decide to unbelieve. That's not possible. I mean, once you have believed, you can't go into unbelief because what Christ did in saving you was to conquer that very thing, unbelief. And so the purpose is unfailing. And in fact, John's already addressed that. If you look back in the second chapter in verse number 19, he tells us that anybody who leaves the fellowship of God's people was never saved in the first place. People that leave aren't saved. The ones that stay, of course, are the ones that are true Christians. So the life that's given is everlasting life, and anything short of eternal salvation is not everlasting life. Now, I want you to listen to how powerful that the argument is in John chapter 6. Now, if you'd go there for just a moment, and uh, if you like to make notes on how you can argue the Bible with all your friends about eternal security, then you wouldn't want to miss John chapter 6. Here, accompanying Jesus' arguments for deity and all the I am statements that he makes that shows us that he's God, he accentuates that by speaking of what he will do for people that believe in him. So we start in chapter 6 and verse number 35. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Now you can underline that as the first statement of eternal security in this passage. That when you come to Christ and believe in him, you will never hunger and never thirst. Well, obviously, he's not talking about physical hunger or physical thirst. He's giving us metaphors for eternal life. And you can tie that in to the relief of physical hunger and thirst only in the sense as, as it happens to us in heaven. Now, I, I'm skipping around a little bit, but you might want to write this scripture in the margin of your Bible next to this, Revelation 7, verses 15 and 16, which says, Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. So perhaps there is a double meaning there. You will receive everlasting life when you go to heaven. There will be no physical hunger and no physical thirst there because it's all satisfied. And Jesus made the same statement to the woman at the well in John 4, 14. He says, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So it's kind of hard to miss those connections. Then Jesus goes on in John chapter 6 and verse number 36, 
And he says, But I said unto you that ye have also seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. So there's a second statement of eternal security. Once you have believed, you will not be cast away from him. Verse number 38, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up again at the last day. So there are the third and the fourth statements of eternal security. And these are powerful because they bring in another dimension to the argument. This is the Father's will, according to Jesus, all which he hath given me. And there's another dimension. That's the election, eternal election. And then he brings in the resurrection. He will raise it up at the last day. And then Jesus reemphasized the same point with a fifth statement of eternal security in verse number 40. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So there we have the Father's will again. We have everlasting life again and the resurrection again. Verse 41, The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And there are the sixth and the seventh statements of eternal security. God's eternal purpose is brought into effect by effectually calling those that are chosen of verse number 39. And he gives another statement about the resurrection there as well. Then verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. And in verse number 47, that's the ninth statement of eternal security in this passage. He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Now, if you wanted to run through all those verses again, you could make an argument that there are actually more than nine statements of eternal security found there. But one thing you surely can't argue is that there is abundant proof in just one passage of Scripture that God promises eternal life once you have believed your salvation can never be taken away from you. Now, I want you to stick with this passage for just a moment. We'll add just one more note here. John 6 also argues for eternal security with the provision for life. And I've already addressed this, but it's a statement in verse number 35. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Here, Jesus is contrasting temporary life that you have without salvation to eternal life that you have with salvation. So what's the advantage of having salvation if it's nothing more than temporary life? We've already got temporary life, and it doesn't come with all the rigors of trying to live without sin. Now, really, here, here is one of the, the major issues that we differ with in Roman Catholic, the Roman, the Roman Catholic system, because when you sin... They, they have an idea that you have a temporary relief from it. You go and you confess to a priest, you do penance, you do some repetitions of the rosary, and, 
and things like that, and, and it's okay until you sin again. And you keep doing that over and over and over again. You sin, go back to the priest, sin, go back to the priest, and so on and so on. And hopefully that and somewhere in the process you don't commit a mortal sin from which you can never be forgiven. So in the meantime, if you do make it out of this life with membership in the Roman Catholic Church and baptism and confirmation and the Eucharist and a priest to administer last rites when you die, then you might die lucky enough to spend an unspecified amount of time in a hell-like purgatory that's going to clean you up just a little bit more. And finally, hopefully, and with no means any certainty, you might sneak through some small crack in the wall of heaven. And that might not even happen to you. If you don't have enough friends and family to, to pay the priest and give him a boatload of money to get you out of purgatory. Folks, that doesn't sound anything like what Jesus said. People speak of the piety of Roman Catholicism and the wonderful peace of the pontiff and all that. But the truth of the matter is, it's the most miserable religion in all the world. I'd rather be a Muslim. I, I, I think I'd rather be a Mormon or something because at least I have a hope of 40 virgins or something when this life is over. But with Catholicism, what you get is the suffering of penance now and the sentence of purgatory later. So it's not any fun now and it's not any fun then either. So it's a miserable system. What we get when we trust in Christ truly is everlasting peace with God. We get provision of life that sustains us all the way to the end of this life, and then we get eternal life with God, the hope of eternal life in heaven. Now, it's interesting that when Jesus was speaking to the thief on the cross, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise, and not today you'll be with me in purgatory. I mean, Jesus fully intended that he would be in the presence of God when he died, and that is the everlasting life that he gives. So we're not through with this. I mean, I have some more points that I, I want to make concerning the permanency of salvation, and we're going to come back and talk about it some more, and then I want to talk about what you as an individual do. I mean, what is the personal work that you do to ensure salvation? And, and you might want to come back and hear that because I don't want you to misunderstand what that means. And then I'll have something to say about the Holy Spirit, and how that the Spirit figures into eternal salvation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved in these persuasive facts of assurance. So God wants you to know that you have eternal life, and he wants you to have that assurance when there are so many people out there today that teach that you cannot know, it's impossible for you to know, it's even presumptuous for you to think that you could know you have eternal life. God wants us to know it and be sure of it, and that's what's going to make us a happy Christian. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the opportunity to look into it. And most of all, Lord, tonight we thank you for the eternal salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that everyone here is a believer, that they've trusted you for their eternal salvation. And it's just wonderful to know all of these promises that are given in the word that, that guarantee this and, and help us to understand how truly great our salvation is. Bless us tonight, Lord. We thank you for, for being here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.